let's move. We're going to be going into starting a new sermon series on Malachi. Everybody know where Malachi is? If you want to turn there in your scripture, there is an outline in your bulletin. If you want to pull that out and uh, follow along, there's even on the other side questions if you want to use in your small group or just in your own personal meditations. Malachi, as you probably already know, the final book of the Old Testament and not the last book of the Bible because there will be about a 440 or 50 year gap until Jesus is born, but God will be silent in that period. Silent doesn't mean stuff wasn't going to go on. A whole lot went on in those years up that set up Jesus coming. Um, as you know, if, well, maybe you don't remember what happens after the Persian because we have Assyria that took away the northern kingdom. Remember that? And then the, those 10 tribes, the allegedly 10 lost tribes. Then we have um, Babylon who comes in 100 or so years later and in stages uh, takes Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, and there eventually the temple is destroyed in 589 B.C. Uh, and then not that long after that, Persia, you know, maybe 70 years after the last exiles go, um, Persia comes and they conquer. And so that will be where we are now. We're under, in Malachi, under the Persian dynasty. But anybody know who comes after Persia? Who will conquer Persia? Greece. Alexander the Great. And who will conquer Greece? Rome. So that will happen in the century right before Jesus comes. And Greek, the Greek conquest was really important because a lot went on in the temple. There was this huge thing. There was a Maccabean revolt in that in between the Testaments period. So a whole bunch goes on. And so Malachi is that last word and it sets up some of the stuff that's going to happen um, before Jesus comes. Malachi speaks to our spiritual heart. It's a time of transition for Israel. And so that's one of the key things to remember. I want to First, I want to tell you a story, though, that kind of sets up what the issues that Malachi was addressing were. So there was a man named John, and John worked very hard. John loved to come home from work and have his peace and quiet. But John had a really large front yard, you know, one of those that seems to go on forever and that uh, you take forever to mow. And so, But the boys in the neighborhood back in this day when we did pick up football games, it doesn't seem to happen much anymore, but they would play football in John's front yard and he would come home every day to this rowdy, noisy neighborhood boys all playing football and arguing and such. And so he'd chase him away because he wanted his peace and quiet, but it wouldn't work. They'd come back the next day. He'd come home from work and there they would be in his front yard. John got this idea. He thought, you know, I'll take a different approach to this. So he went out that afternoon and he said, boys, I'm really sorry. I've been chasing you out of my yard all these many days. And, you know, I'd like for you to feel like you can come and play football in my yard. So I'll tell you what, I'll pay each of you a dollar to come back tomorrow and play football in my front yard. The boys thought this was great. So John came back paid them all the next day a dollar. They all came back. He says, you know, kids, you know, I'd love this, but if you'll come back tomorrow, I'm going to pay you 75 cents. 
And so they came back. He paid them 75 cents. They're happy. And this went on. And each day he reduced their pay a little bit more till it was down to 25 cents. And on that day, he says, you know, guys, when you come back tomorrow, I can only afford to pay you a dime. And the kids go, 10 cents, that's not worth it. I'm not doing this anymore. And they never came back. (laughs) Now, why did I tell you this story? You know, the only thing that changed was their attitude. So what was once a passion now became a duty for which they expected reward. Do we do the same in our spiritual relationship? Once in my early days when I was age 18 and I became a Christian, I was all on fire and excited. I couldn't wait to read my Bible. And then after that, some times came, it's sort of like, oh, I'm so sleepy. I don't want to read again. I'd fall asleep. I'll try that getting up early. I was not a morning person. I'd fall asleep in my quiet times. And and it became a, a duty. And that's where Malachi is addressing The religious community has lost their passion. They've slipped into duty and indifference. And so their actions, maybe how they responded to all that, shows a lot of what we are like in our spiritual walk today. Things are not always so different. So let's look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Okay, so we'll start off easy. The name Malachi, anybody know what it means literally? My messenger could mean my angel, but in this case, human, it's my messenger. So messenger of God, Melech, which all over in Arabic, that means king, messenger in this particular case. And it's a direct message of God to his children, to those who have returned from captivity. Because when Babylon took them off into captivity in 589, or all the way actually from 609 or so to 589 was the main uh, conquering and taking off into captivity, um, that was Babylon's national policy as well as the Assyrian Empire before them. Persia had a different view. When they conquered Babylon, they sent and repatriated people back into their home countries. And if you've looked in Nehemiah and Ezra, those are prophets that and books that address situations after the exile and the return into the land. And so things were hard. The conditions were very challenging for them because nobody had been tending the land, but King Artaxerxes, which is all this is about 440 BC, uh, so he sends them back. They had come back sooner than that. Their, their parents and grandparents had returned some 100 years really earlier than that. They built the temple about 75 years before Malachi wrote. So we're talking to the children and grandchildren of the original first exiles. And they have struggled with their parents to, like the land is overgrown. Nobody's been farming it and tending it. And you know what happens to land when you kind of leave it. it. It deteriorates and turns wild and you got to pull out new trees and things. And, and so they also found that Jerusalem, the walls had been taken down and that may sound like, well, big deal, but think of, of not having uh, the ra- all of our radar installations all over the perimeter of the United States get taken out and, all of a sudden, we don't know if some attack is coming. 
because we're defenseless. Well, that's how the walls, they were a barrier and they were big, thick walls. There were levels of walls and all kinds of things. And those were destroyed, which meant every marauding band could sweep into Jerusalem or any other city without walls. And it was a very insecure existence. And so here we have their safety is questionable. They have have just rebuilt the temple 75 years earlier. Their religion is now different. They have to cultivate their land with back-breaking labor. And so it just felt like, you know, things are, are challenging. This is a hard transition. And the temple now, they, they no longer did idolatry. That's why God exiled them in the first place, both the northern and southern kingdom of Judah, was they just could not let go of idolatry. After this, this 70 years of captivity or more, idolatry was never the challenge for Israel. Other things would become the challenge, as Jesus' ministry would show, the Pharisees and Sadducees, but they didn't do idolatry. They have a temple, but it isn't the same temple that Solomon had. And so a lot of that sort of you're still under the thumb of the Persians, and after that you'll be under the thumb of the Greeks and then the Romans. And so things were hard. And the people got their temple, and they waited and waited for the blessings to come, but instead it felt to them like all we're getting is drought, famine, poverty, and oppression. And so they wonder, God, what is going on here? You ever wonder that? Why can't things just be easier? Why does God have to make things so hard? Why can't God just bless me? Anybody ever besides me wonder where God is? Just I'm, the, I'm it, huh? Okay, well, I'll tell you my story. Where were the promises of God? Why were they suffering so much? They're in the promised land, promised land. Promises. Where are the promises? Here's the answer that we'll look at in a minute when we read Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. Spiritual and moral complacency had seeped into their lives. Malachi tries to rekindle the fires of faith in the hearts of the disillusioned. So your first point on your outline, if you're following that, is that does complacency infect your spiritual life? Are you complacent? Are you wondering, now, where is God? You know, why, why can't I have more blessings? And we get complacent. We just kind of sit back and go, if this is how it's going to be, why try? A handicapped girl with leg braces became so discouraged with her condition and she had to go to this physical therapy at this regular points and you know if you've ever been in physical therapy it's a lot of work it's pain it's not like oh boy I'm going to physical therapy today and so she was tired of it and she just finally fell into her father's arms and she was weeping and crying and pleading and she says daddy don't you love me just the way I am And knowing how he felt, he hugged her and replied, yes, honey, I love you just the way you are, but I also love you enough to keep you from staying that way. I want you to heal. And so sometimes that's how God loves us. And that's the message of Malachi. God loved them too much to let them stay where they were in compromise and complacency in their life, just to kind of have this mediocre spiritual life. And guess what? God loves us. He loves you too much to let you stay the same way 
in your spiritual life. We don't become a believer in Jesus Christ, have this great initial experience, and then go, okay, I'm just going to coast on in. I mean, I know where I'm going when I die. I got my fire insurance. What else is there? We'll just kind of go along. God wants you to grow. He wants you to make progress. He doesn't want you to stay stuck in where you were last year, 10 years ago. He wants you to be different closer to him, growing in your spiritual life. And that's what Malachi is talking about. So verse two, first half says, God says to them, I have always loved you, says the Lord, but you retort, the people answer, really? How have you loved us? So what does love mean here? If they, God says, I love you. And they go, really? How? How? Show me. Give me some evidence. Well, first of all, love is not an emotion. Love isn't just giving your kids a bunch of chocolate chip cookies, right? Some of us, you know, grew up and we ate a lot more sugar than we should. And now, you know, one of the disadvantages of cookies is, you know, weight gain, sugar rushes. And so God loved them too much to let them stay how they were, but they didn't see it. They thought love was based on what they received or an emotion, how they felt or how God felt. God says love is an unconditional, unwavering commitment to a relationship. Isn't that the best description of love and marriage? It's not just what you feel because eventually, bad news if you're waiting to get married and thinking, I just can't wait. It, eventually this cloud nine high experience does come down and, and become sustainable for several decades because it's a commitment to an, in marriage to an imperfect person. So God is saying, don't look at your circumstances and decide if you're loved or not. Say it's an unconditional commitment that God has made to you. No matter what, he's still with you. It's an unwavering commitment God has for you. See, covenant blessings require covenant behavior, and they seem to have missed that point. So when Israel says, how have you loved us? Maybe they could be saying something like this. How can you claim to love us? Look at our lives. Do these circumstances look like love and favor to you? You see, circumstances, the, the famine, the poverty, the difficulty rebuilding the, the cities, the not having the state of your being your own nation still, you're a vassal to some other country. And they kind of look at that and go, this doesn't look like love. Circumstances led them to doubt God's love. And so they, like I mentioned, they would just say, so why try so hard if this is what you get for trying hard? Do you ever feel like that? Because I've heard that and feel that a lot. People that say, look, I kept myself, you know, for all this time for a Christian husband and now none's coming along. I'm going to marry this non-Christian guy. I've had that conversation many times, many painful times because later when I hear the story, it doesn't work. And all that stuff that you felt goes away. And then what do you have? You don't have a common basis. Or someone who says, look, I kept myself pure for marriage. And then I got married and there was this problems. And and why is God treating me this way when I kept myself pure? And then I got this. Look at these problems. And so we feel like, you know, if I commit to God, he should commit to give me the things I think I should get. And so I have a lack of commitment. These people doubted or even in some cases walked away from God because they prayed they didn't get the answer they wanted. A woman recalls when she was six years old, 
she wrote this valentine for her father. She, she put her dad's name on it, drew hearts all over, took this sheet of paper, folded it in half, and, and put inside, I love you, with hearts all around it, and this pencil, little pencil drawing as best as a six-year-old could do. And she put it on his dresser, and she couldn't wait the next day when she would get up and dad would come home. He would see this, and, and, and she was just couldn't wait to hear his response. She didn't hear anything. No response. So she went into his room after he went to work. She found the valentine she had left in the trash. So she thought, well, it must be a mistake. So she took it and she put it back in a very central spot right there in the middle, stood it up where he could, wouldn't miss it. And so she couldn't wait. And the next day, the same thing. No, she heard nothing. He said nothing. She found the valentine the next day, not only in the trash, but crumpled up with some other papers. So she thought and convinced herself in her little six-year-old mind that he just didn't see it. He just swept it up with other papers and threw them all away. And so, you know, she just put it in the most place where he would never miss it. And then that night, dad called her in and said, I want you to quit putting that note on my dresser. I know you already love me. Not the response she was looking for. So now fast forward, she's an adult. And she says, you know, when I became a Christian, I thought about finding my Valentine in the trash and about how hurt and angry I had felt. Why hadn't my dad responded in love back to me? Then I thought about God. God put a Valentine on my dresser. It had my name on the outside, and on the inside it said, I love you. Only the letters were not with pencil. They were written with blood. It cost Jesus his life to send me his valentine. And he's still sending them. So do you ever crumple up God's love messages to you, at least spiritually speaking or emotionally speaking, in your mind? You go, yeah, yeah, God loves me. Yeah, I heard that in church. But you kind of crumple it up in your mind and discard it, put it to the side. Are you interested in the hard work of a deeper relationship with him? See, we crumple up God's love messages when our attitudes is something like, what have you done for me lately, God? We pull away from God when he doesn't give us the blessings we deserve because we have an attitude of entitlement because that's what it is. If I do this, then God will do this. And it doesn't always work that way. And so we think, I'm entitled if I live a good life to have good blessings, right? That really is a conditional relationship. It's not an unconditional commitment to God. So how often do we have that attitude of entitlement? What have you done for me lately, God? So on your outline, do you measure God's love by circumstances? Maybe complacency has infected your spiritual life. You're more complacent or at least somewhat And now do you measure God's love by circumstances? Do those circumstances push you to compromise? Do your struggles pull you to pursue your spiritual life less diligently maybe? You know, if God loved me, he would make things easier so you doubt that God loves you. And you know, we can pull away from God in in some really hidden ways. Say, "I, I don't really like reading my Bible. I don't get much out of it. So I don't do it very much. If I do, it's just two or three minutes. Or why should I keep praying all the time? It doesn't really change anything. God knows what, I, what I'm thinking. So why, why pray if it doesn't really 
make a big difference in, in the world or even in my life. Or maybe we say, I don't really want to get involved with people in a small group or in relationships because, you know, I did that once. The people hurt me. They walked away from me. I felt rejected. I don't want to take that chance anymore, so I'm not going to go get involved in all that messy relational stuff at church. And so we just kind of withdraw because we don't want to get hurt again. These are all kind of evidences that maybe our heart is more complacent and more based on circumstances with God's love than we want to think. That's what Malachi is addressing to them. That's what Malachi applies to us. How has God loved us? How do we know that? Do we base it on circumstances or do we get complacent and withdraw? Well, one more little set of scriptures in our third point. Malachi wants to assure them that God loves them still. And he demands, though, their honor and faithfulness. Now, these are going to be some difficult verses. And if you have your version open to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I'm going to read how the NLT, the New Living Translation, which isn't usually the one I use, if I was using the ESV or the NIV, it's going to use a word hate that we're not going to like. So verse 2, the Lord replies about how have you loved us. This is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected, or if your version has hate, hated his brother Esau and and devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. See, when God says he rejected or he hated Esau, you got to admit, it, it still doesn't mean, I'm like, oh, man, that's one of those really tough ones. How can the God of love say he hates somebody? We're not supposed to hate. But I, the reason I chose the NLT is because really what the essence of this hate is, is a rejection. Now, why would God reject Esau? Why would God say that I hate Esau? Because rejection meant that Esau did not have God's favor. And why didn't he have God's favor? Because Esau lived a life that was self-centered and wicked, that refused to honor God. So in Esau refusing to honor God, living life for himself, God says, I reject you. Now, we kind of ascribe a lot of emotion to that word hate, but in the Old Testament and really in the New, the idea is something about just not having favor. In fact, Luke uh, 14, 26 says the same thing. Jesus says, in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So here's that idea again. It's not saying that you loathe and detest them and treat your children or your parents or your brother or your sister or your wife or husband horrible. It means that your relationship and commitment to God is above every other human relationship. Can you say that? Because it's not talking about the emotion of hate. It's talking about love versus which is favoring and, and giving versus not favoring and, and the pushing away because they have dishonored God. God says, you don't honor me. You'll live a wicked lifestyle for yourself. Then that's not what is going to get my favor. And God is saying to us, your relationship with me is not some casual, superficial thing. You kind of work it into your top 10 priorities. God's up there somewhere. 
you know, we found there are a lot of other things that come before that. I may have mentioned before, I went to a conference where somebody from Rwanda was talking about how did a Christian nation ever end up with genocide happening because both the Tutsis and the Hutus were Christians, Christian tribes. Yet they slaughtered one another. They killed and oppressed one another in what became one of the worst scandals of of the 20th century. And Christians like, oh, I don't understand how that could happen. And they, the man said, yes, we all believed in Jesus. Yes, we believed in those same things. But we found our commitment to and love for God really was down on the list. And uh, there were a whole bunch of things up before that because they would simply say, well, those, those Tutsis are not real human beings. They're subhuman. Ever heard that one before? A Holocaust. I mean, it's the same thing that we do. Even... We're saying we believe in God. And so what God is, is saying to them is that this is not reflecting who I am. Your commitment to me has to rank above everything else, even your children. That's a tough one, isn't it? Do you love God more than you love your children? Are you more committed to him? Because he says, if those other things are above me, they're idols, even parenting, even marriage. Or dating. Those things can get put above God and, and they become less important than him. <clears throat> and so love-hate is maybe, they call it hyperbole, where Jesus states a very dramatic thing, but what it really is meaning is that no other relationship is more important than God. And Esau didn't reflect that. Esau reflected a completely self-oriented lifestyle, a wickedness, and that's what the next verses will say. Verse 4, Esau's descendants in Edom, which is in southern Jordan now, may say, we have been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, they may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them again. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness. There you have your clue as to what's going on with Esau throughout all of his history. A man of wickedness, a person not honoring God, even though he was raised with the same parents as Jacob. And their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. See, when you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, truly the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. So back when Babylon was sweeping in and conquering, they didn't just conquer Judah. They conquered the entire surrounding area, which includes all of those areas east of the Jordan, Edom being one of those. And so he conquered, took them off into exile just the same as he did Israel. And so they came back and they would say, well, we will rebuild. The Persians sent them back too. And they say, we will rebuild. And God says, no, you won't. So I want you to historically think about this and what this says about who God is. So they tried to rebuild and they are in Edom And above them was the kingdom of Moab, where if you've ever been to the Middle East, there's Petra. You you see pictures of the dramatic stuff in Petra. That was just north. And so the people in Moab took and conquered the people in Edom when they tried to rebuild. And eventually, they pushed them all the way into southern Palestine, and they ceased to exist as a nation. Edom would become absorbed into the Arab people and would just simply become part of the Arab population. 
in modern-day Jordan. Modern-day Jordan is Edom, Moab above it, and Ammon above it, where Jordan's capital, Ammon, same word. And so all of those tribes, even the ones north of that, they all became the country of Jordan. They ceased to exist. Is that true of Israel? Has Israel ceased to exist? They didn't cease to exist in Malachi's era because God took care of them. Edom would, and for that matter, later Moab would. They would all be conquered. But Israel would still, even when a vassal, retain their national identity. They would retain who they were as a people. And so Israel continues, continued to exist in Malachi's time and continues to exist today. And so God is saying, look at my favor. The nations can look and go, you got to admit, it's pretty supernatural how all, throughout all those centuries, under all those oppressors, and then what happened with Rome, and then we, the tribes are scattered, but God brought them back together. No other people has that been true dispersed, brought back together to become their own country again. And God saying, that is my hand. Someday the whole world will look back at what God has done, these verses say, how he has fulfilled his promises, how he has been faithful to his covenant, and what response will they have but to worship? Because one day God's reputation will cover the whole earth. So number three on your outline, looking for God's fingerprints in life is worship. So how do we worship God? We don't look at circumstance. We look at where is God in my life? How do I see his fingerprints to know he's there? Even when times are hard, even when things are really, really, really challenging. Worship of God needs a bigger perspective than just being stuck in the hurts of the past or the fears of the future. When we worship God, we look for him throughout every aspect of our life. And find if you look for God's fingerprints, you can see it. You can look out the window. I say God's fingerprints are out there, even if you're sort of like, oh, I can't, don't want to drive home in that. I have to go out tomorrow or later today. I don't want to drive in it. But the beauty, where do you see God's fingerprints in your life? not just in nature, but in other people, in things that you can see. Even when things don't look good, God's fingerprints are always there. And then when we start looking for those intentionally every day, it's a form of worship and trusting him because we believe he will sustain us even when we can't see it overtly. One year, there's a guy named Morgan. This is our final story for you. Morgan was given a surprise birthday gift of a bulldog who was named Churchill. Kind of an appropriate name for a bulldog, don't you think? The dog was always by Morgan's side. He could be counted on to meet Morgan at the door whenever he returned home. And Morgan said that Churchill existed to be in my presence existed to be in my presence. Now, Churchill the dog could not understand what Morgan was thinking. Like, why would his master leave? Or why would he feed him only these certain foods? Or why would my master take me for a walk at certain times but not other times? And Morgan observed this. He said, my ways were higher than his dog ways, and my thoughts were beyond his dog thoughts. Still, Churchill thought I existed for the sole purpose of caring for him and spending time with him. 
just as often, I often think God's main business is to listen to me and take care of me. And Churchill had no way of understanding why his master let painful things happen to him. Churchill didn't understand that. Why would he take me to that place with that mean person that sticks needles in me? Sorry, Lori. Why, when he goes to the veterinarian, it was time to go. Churchill happily jumped into the car and took that trip to the vet. Didn't ask anything. He said Churchill was glad simply to be going on an outing with his master. He lived without answers. He did not know what was next. All he knew was what he had always known. He knew whose he was and that he was traveling with the master he loved. Could we be Churchill's in our relationship with God? All we need to know is whose we are and that we are traveling with our master who loves us. Because that's what Malachi is really all about as we open this short series. Immediate circumstances might be difficult, but our lives can still be devoted to God because we know whose we are. We're traveling in this life with our master who loves us. So if you're struggling with those attitudes that say, what have you done for me lately, God? If you're doubting his love for you, do you ever doubt his love for you? Do you have that attitude of entitlement? How come I'm not getting more blessings out of this deal? But when you can let go of those things and say, I am his and he is traveling with me, even when I get taken to the vet, spiritually speaking, to get the shot that I need, we can worship God on a deeper level and throw off the tyranny of circumstances. Let's pray. So Lord, as we started looking at Malachi, a people in transition under a new kingdom back in their land for only a few generations, trying to figure out how it all works together and things are difficult. Lord, may we learn from Israel, from those people, those exiles who had returned. May we take the messages of Malachi, tough though they are, just like today. I have hated Esau, and we struggle in our Western way of looking at things to understand how that could be with a loving God. And yet, let us walk with you as our master, because we know that you do love us, and that you are fair and just, and those things are not outside your character even when we don't understand them, just like Churchill the dog couldn't understand the ways of his life. He didn't worry about him. He just walked with his master. May we do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.